Before I really get started, I want to ask you a couple of questions, and it's easy. It's questions you really know the answer to, so don't panic. This is uh, church participation time. So the first question is, how many gods are there? How many gods are there? And what's his name? Very good. I want you to remember that through the course of this, this message. I'm going to start this evening by giving you the title of the message. Let's go ahead and, you know, we normally kind of give that a little bit later on, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to you tonight. The title of the message is The Form of Modern Idolatry. The Form of Modern Idolatry. And before I read my text, I'd like to give you all a little background on the central character of, of who's going to be in the, the very first part of the text, the the individual's name is Rehoboam, Rehoboam, and some of you may know him. He's, he's, uh, he's not a really well-defined character in the Bible, but he was the grandson of King David. Uh, he was the son of Solomon, and he was uh, the king. He had the dubious distinction of being the king of, of Israel, a united Israel, and it was torn into two separate kingdoms under his reign. Um, the reason being is Rehoboam listened to the counsel of people his own age. His contemporaries. And there's a lesson in that by itself. He did not listen to the counsel of the elders that were around him, and he increased the taxation and the, you know, the financial burden, and just the burden on the people of Israel to, to support uh, his, la- his lavish lifestyle in the, in, the, in the city of Jerusalem. And because of that, the kingdom split. He started his reign at about 41 years old. He was, uh, in the beginning of his reign, he was a man that served God that was obedient to the word of God, and then something changed in his life. Now, you have to understand, being the grandson of David, he had the influence of David in his life. And he also had the influence of Solomon, who he saw. He was, he was raised in the king's court. He watched these men. And he, he witnessed the death and, of his father, who declined into idolatry, so these things had an effect on him. So we're going to read 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. We're going to kind of skip a few. And it came to pass, this is verse 1 and 2. And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. He forsook the law of the Lord. He had strengthened himself and then he forsook the law of the Lord. He was an independent man. He, uh, he felt capable of doing things on his own. He no doubt, because of his behavior, felt that he didn't need God. And all Israel with him. The unintended consequences. All Israel forsook the law with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, this is verse 2, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed 
against the Lord. Verse 5. Then came Shemaiah, the prophet to Rehoboam, and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, because they were fearful, because of the consequences of their action. And said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, ye have forsaken me. Thus saith, this is a terrifying sentence for anyone to hear. Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you. The hands of Shishak. Second Chronicles, this, this scripture is the consequence of his idolatry. Verse, uh, verse 9 says, So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. And the treasures of the king's house, he took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Instead of which, now he had just been seeing his kingdom ransacked because of his idolatry. And it says here that instead of which, King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them into the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again into the guard chamber. That is the first text. The second is going to be from 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. Even in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. The very next verse in the New Testament says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The Amplified Bible says it a little differently, and I like it. It says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols or false gods, from anything and everything. That, uh, that would occupy the place in your heart due to God from any sort of substitute for him that would take first place in your life. Amen. Now, I know a little bit about substitutions. I, I am not a sports fanatic, but I do know that in most teams, you all may laugh at me because I'm terrible at this, but in most, uh, in most professional teams, the substitute is of equal value to the team as the original, or at least close to it. He can function and perform almost in the same way, right? Well, there are no substitutes for Jesus Christ. There are no substitutes with what we're doing. And this is not a game. This is not a game. Before I begin with the body of the message, we're going to come back to Rehoboam later. And I don't think I'm going to keep you very long, but if you'll listen, I think it'll benefit you. Before I begin with the body of the message, I feel I have to tell you the reason that I believe the word was given to me. And this word has been burned in my heart for the last several weeks. 
You see, grace, normally whenever a minister gets up here and God's moving in, in a church, you say, oh, I feel you're on the precipice of something great. I feel something's right around the corner great for this church. Well, I don't feel that way. I feel we're already past that threshold. I believe greatness has come to grace. I believe there's a sovereign move of God happening in this church. I believe the threshold of the, or the precipice of it happening is behind us. Which changes the dynamic of the way we've got to act. Whenever, as I was beginning to develop this message, the Lord brought to my mind the life cycle of a seed. Life cycle of a seed. And, and I'm what you would call an, um, an enthusiastic amateur gardener. Which, which means I, am, I, am, I avidly, he's laughing, I avidly grow a garden once in a blue moon. I really get into it. And then I see the weeds and, and then I throw the gloves down and I just walk back in the house and I go to Winn-Dixie and buy my groceries. Okay, so I know something about gardening. Let me tell you. Don't do it. Okay. If you get any, no, listen, I'm serious. So the Lord brought this to my attention very forcefully. And the seed, you see, a seed once planted can germinate under a range of conditions, ladies and gentlemen. You plant a seed, the soil temperature, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a tomato seed, for example. They can begin to germinate in a temperature between about 50 and 95 degrees. That's the range. You'll get some germination. The optimal temperature for that seed is 80 degrees. 80 degrees. That is the perfect temperature for the germination of the seed. Once sprouted, this young plant can exist and grow again within a range of conditions. In my garden, it was full of weeds. Very little water. But still the plants grew. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed what lack of attention can do to a garden. So this seed can sprout with the Jason. It kind of starts growing up into the, through the soil. And I was seeing this in my mind. And I saw two plants. And the seed germinated. And it began to grow. And it broke through the soil. And, and there were a range of conditions it encountered. The water fluctuated. The moisture in the, in, in, in the garden fluctuated. And, and the, the sun, the sunlight that it received fluctuated. The temperature fluctuated. But that plant continued to grow. And at the end of its life cycle, it resembled what it was intended to. Let's just say that it resembled a corn plant. But it wasn't vigorous. Its yield was small and low. The plant was yellow and blighted. But it still was a corn plant, but it did not reach its potential. See, the weeds and the parasites robbed that plant of its nutrients, but yet it still survived. But for that plant to reach its full potential, for that plant to have the greatest yield, the conditions had to be as optimal as possible. As optimal as possible. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the plant eventually reveals the conditions in which it grew. 
At the end of the day, when you go out to, to pull something off that plant, if you have not tended the garden well, if you have not paid attention to the conditions in which you sowed that seed, your yield will be very, very disappointing. The potential was there. But the reality was different than the potential. We are in that place. The potential is monumental. The power of my God has not diminished, nor has it changed. And His will is for this church to be dynamic, to be a soul-winning church. To express his power and his reality as he wills it. A seed of tremendous potential has been planted within grace, church. And let me tell you that that interaction between the plant and the soil, that can be summed up in one word, and that's relationship. Relationship. I'm talking about relationship. Wherever we go tonight, remember, that's what we're talking about. Amen? Seed of tremendous potential has been planted within grace. But for that seed to grow into the dynamic, soul-winning, supernatural, God-centered church that is the design, the design of the Most High God, the conditions have to correspond with the potential. If we want the perfect will of God expressed in our lives, whether it's corporately as a church or individually, then our lives must be free from the contaminants that would be a barrier to its expression. Which brings us to tonight's message. The seed, you see, is not what God burdened my heart with, but rather the conditions. God desires that the conditions within grace, which ultimately mean the conditions within the body of Christ, that compose grace to be in that narrow band that is most advantageous for his design and presence to be expressed. The fact is we serve a God that can function and execute his will within that less than optimal range that, human, that humanity often exists. But he desires and guides us toward the conditions that are ideal for his power and presence to be manifested. Conditions free from the insinuating influence of this world. Influence that weaken the body of Christ and rob the church of its vitality. Influences that attempt to usurp the divine order that places the Most High God at the pinnacle of our priorities and lives. We can make the connection within the message, within this message that God is trying to tell us. Then I feel that we're going to begin to see manifestations of the Spirit of God that I think we secretly think are impossible. We began with a scriptural text that relayed the spiritually bankrupt condition of Rehoboam. 
A man who had transitioned from the worship of the only true God to the adoption of substitutes. Substitutes. But to understand the scope of his failure and its relevance to the modern church, we have to trace our way through the history of a people and a nation whose very existence is a direct result of God's will and who struggled with the lingering intent to replace him with creations of their own will. See, God is always seeking relationship. He's always seeking relationship. But that relationship, ladies and gentlemen, will be according to his will. It will be based upon the template that he has designed. God has established his identity with his people throughout history. The identity and reality of God and his uniquely sovereign status has been painstakingly expressed to his creation, his people throughout his interaction with them. Every time that God interacts with his people, he lets them know who he is. He desires a relationship with you. So he's going to tell you who he is. There will be no doubt in your mind who your God is. The Lord expressed it clearly to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the mighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. That is a typical, somewhat typical interaction. God tells you who he is. And he also tells you how you're going to interact with him. There is no compromise with my God. God revealed himself in various ways to Abraham's progeny. With each interaction, the Lord confirmed his sovereign status to Isaac and Jacob. There was no doubt in the minds as to who God was or or to where their affection and trust should rest. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped one God. What was that question I asked you earlier? How many gods are there? One God. You may think this is simple. But this is part of your foundation. This truth hasn't changed. They worshipped one God. They were obedient to one God. They followed one God. They did not deviate from the truth of that one God message. Approximately 400 years later, this sentiment was expressed to a man named Moses on Mount Horeb as he stood before the presence of God. Exodus chapter 3 and 6 says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses received his instructions and then asked an important question. Verses 13 and 14, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, you have to understand that the children of Israel, we'll get into this a little bit later, they had been existing within a polytheistic culture for 400 years. Their environment was not conducive for the one God message. What shall I say unto them? And God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? Moses knew. When I go to these people and say the God of my, your fathers, they're going to ask me, who is that? Who is that? Because that message at that particular time had not been burned into their mind. And because of that, they had to ask the question, who is my God? This is the people who were designed by God to be a nation. And they didn't even know him. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. This singular being who was the architect of the universe left no doubt to his creation who he was. This message, this truth was so overwhelmingly important that a refugee nation standing in the dust of the desert we're told in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. With the blazing sun of the wilderness beating down on them, hungry and thirsty, the most important thing that was ever told to them was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and with all of thy soul, with all of thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the wayside and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and upon the frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. This scripture underscores the vital importance of that message. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you're going to serve him with everything in you. It was to be, that message was to be physically bound to them. It was going to be, it should have been taught to their children. What do we teach our children in our homes? Spoken of while they were at home. Thought of before they slept 
And it was supposed to be the first thing on their mind when they awoke in the morning. You think that message wasn't important? This truth was to be imprinted upon their national psyche. They were to be surrounded by its truth. As the fledgling nation stood bereft of the pain and the hardship that had been with them so long that it was considered normal, they were reassured that they had a God. This message of the one true God and the standard of commitment to serve Him was part of their spiritual DNA. It was a message that was to be inseparable from the people of God. And it still is. That has not changed in the thousands of years that have transpired since that message was first taught. He is one God, and there is no other. But when we hear this message in some of our churches in 2017, the only thing that it elicits in some of us is a yawn. That is a foundational truth that will take you from here to there. It is absolutely essential for us to know it, to love it, and to adhere to it. It is just as important for it to be imprinted on Grace Church as it was the Israelites running around in the dirt. My God hasn't changed and neither has his expectations. This truth should still be ingrained within the minds of those who are bought with the blood that he shed upon Calvary. It should be a message that animates those who have been filled with his spirit. Just because a few thousand years separates from that initial delivery of the truth does not mean the message has changed. Brother Ben, we're talking about modern idolatry. Yeah, I know. We're getting to it. We've got to trace our path through and find out where we are. This precious revelation of the one God message had an inherent principle. Within it, there was an inherent principle. There is no other God but Him. There is no other God but Him. So therefore, you will serve no other God but him. There is no other God but Jesus. And you will serve no other God but Jesus. Isaiah 43 and 10 said, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. 43 and 11, the book of Isaiah said, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. 
There is no other God but him. These were the words spoken by God through the prophet Isaiah to a people with a problem. To a people with a problem. This is God's people. This is people with a covenant relationship with God. But they had a problem. You see, when the children of Israel exited Egypt after the torment of slavery... They brought with them more than just gold and silver and jewels of their oppressors. They carried with them the influence of a culture with over 2,000 false gods. I couldn't get an accurate number. There were so many. A culture whose concept of God was dependent upon their immediate needs their fleshly passions, and their ignorance of the natural world around them. Whatever God they needed, they just made up. They had the raw ingredients all around them. They just made one. A culture that would fashion with their own hands a figure which they would then worship. The most destructive thing the children of Israel carried with them, however, was not a physical idol. That wasn't it. The most dangerous thing that they carried with them out of Egypt, Brother Jason, was an idea. An idea. A concept that had infected their collective consciousness. And that idea was that God could be replaced. That was the idea that wormed its way into their brain. Simply because they didn't hear from their God for a while. That he wasn't there when they felt that he, they needed him. They began to look from this way to that way and an idea wormed into their head. that God could be replaced. This idea was so corrosive to a relationship with the Lord that the first two of the Ten Commandments were a warning against it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's who I am. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? Because no other God can do the things that my God can. That's why you don't serve another God or have an idol, Israel. Because there's nothing else in the universe that can compete with me. Verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You're not going to bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. We can see the insidious nature 
of idolatry in that as Moses was receiving these very commandments from God on Mount Sinai, the people were creating an idol as a substitute for their Savior. That golden calf that they wanted to create or had created was instigated by one of the gods of the Egyptians. This ruinous lie was so entrenched in the minds of the Israelites that it poisoned their relationship with the Lord from that day forward. To my knowledge, it was never Israel's intention to be to completely reject God. That was not their intention, I don't believe. Believe that they simply wanted to add other gods to those which they could worship. The Old Testament indicates, however, that having any other god or gods always constitutes forsaking the one true God. Church, God is not going to share his glory with anything you create. He's not going to share his glory with anything made from man's hands. That was true thousands of years ago and it's true today. Which brings us back to Rehoboam. The form of the idols that appear among the children of Israel are both physical and mental. Rehoboam was witness to the gradual turn to idolatry from his father Solomon. 1 Kings 11, 5 through 8 says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. His mother was an Ammonite. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for the Shemash, the abomination of Moab. This is the same man that built the temple to the Lord God Almighty, who had now turned to building temples for other gods. The abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Solomon had become comfortable with idols. He had become comfortable with the things that surrounded him that were the antithesis of Jehovah. We are not of this world. You are a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We cannot become comfortable with the things of this world. Rehoboam and Israel were witness to this infiltration of the unholy. But it was not the groves or the images or the symbols that were destructive to Israel. It was the mentality. It was the mentality. The concept that Jehovah God was not adequate to the needs of his people. The idea that the loss of his presence was an, 
was acceptable among his creation. The notion that anything whose origins in the, that is origins in the mind of man can be capable substitute for the genuine presence and design of God. That is the mentality that was so destructive. Second Chronicles chapter 12 from verses 9 through 19, 9 through 10. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away into them also the shields of gold which Solomon had made, instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass. The 300 shields of gold, each weighing about three pounds, they were very valuable, identified in this text, were forged as a representation of the blessings and glory of God. But I want you to notice when Rehoboam stood looking out over the pillaged temple and his looted home, his corrupted mind did not turn to the restoration of God's presence. It didn't turn to getting God back in his life. He simply created a cheap replacement for that which was far more valuable. Which illustrates a sad truth, church, that once you replace God with one thing, it's easy to replace Him with another. I'm still talking about relationship. As we take one final look at Rehoboam and the events that transpired in the fifth year of his reign, we must realize one very important thing. The glory and majestic presence of God did not reside in those humble brazen shields. That's not where it was. And I got news for you, it wasn't in the golden shields either. The glory and presence of God didn't reside in the physical things that man made. The glory and the presence of God always was in the temple. That's where it always was. I'm telling you, that hasn't changed In 2017, this structure is not the temple. Brother Murphy, you and I are. And I don't care what device that I come up with, what what belief system I come up with, what thing I hold valuable. The only thing that's worthwhile in my life is the presence of God that is in this temple. might ask what is the difference between a modern idol as opposed to an ancient idol what's the difference brother ben what's the difference i've been talking about idols and disobedient people and i live in 2017 i go to a good church it's having a sovereign move of god why are you talking about idols well the difference between a modern idol and an ancient idol is absolutely nothing Absolutely nothing. I don't care what the physical structure of your idol is. Both have similar roots in the human mind. You see, an idol 
is simply a creation of our minds. A construct, whether mental, physical, or philosophical. Designed to replace the divine with the mundane. Something in which our trust resides other than the Lord. Something in which we choose to depend rather than God. I don't know where you are spiritually. In your life, it doesn't change. Your conditions do not determine what God you serve. The author, Herbert Schlossberg, has stated, anyone with a hierarchy of values has placed something at its apex. And whatever that is, is the God he serves. The idols of modern man are his creations, his creations. That's what our idols are. Shaped in his image, shaped in the image of modern man, defined according to his preferences and desires. Modern idolatry exists because man craves a God that is subject to his own will. A God that will provide him the satisfaction of affirming his own personal beliefs. That's what a modern idol is. A modern idol can be anything we place ahead of God in our lives. Anything that takes God's place in our hearts. Whether it's possessions, whether it's a career, whether it's a relationship you know you shouldn't be in. Whether it's your hobby. Sports. Entertainment. Goals. Greed. Addiction. Whatever you obsess about during the day, to the exclusion of God, that has become your idol. Brother Ben, that's awful hard. My goodness, it's a Wednesday night. You were just talking about gardening stuff. It was so cool. Yeah, I know. I know it's heavy. I know it's heavy. I've been carrying this for about a month. I want to see this church... Turn the world upside down. I want to see you blessed beyond measure. I want to see the manifestation, the presence of God like you've never seen before. But in order for that to happen in this church, it's got to be according to the will of God. And you can't have any idol in your life if you expect to see God move in it. Idols can even be the pain. They can even be the pain that has been inflicted upon our lives by others. If we are not careful, bitterness and hatred can crowd out the presence of Jesus Christ. We can find ourselves fixated upon the fault, creating an idol of the offense. Never forgiving holding that pain and that anger close 
allowing it to poison our relationship with God. And at the end of the day, when you're standing before the Lord God Almighty, that anger and bitterness and hatred is going to be a cold substitute for the relationship that you could have had with God. The modern culture in which we live has attempted to recast the God revealed to us in the Scripture and have Him comply with its own inclinations and desires. A kinder and gentler God, if you will. God who is infinitely more tolerant than the one revealed in the Holy Word. One who is less demanding and who will tolerate many lifestyles without ascribing guilt or ever executing judgment. That is the God that this world wants. This is, there is no doubt that we are loved and cherished by a merciful God. There's no doubt. I'm here. So are you. I've, I'm only here because of the mercy of the love of God. But he is and always was, and always will be, holy. Holy. The initiatives pray first and faith it. Not simply a thought exercise. I appreciate you doing that. You th- who, who has those little bracelet things on? Does anybody here have them? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I want to see them. I don't have one. Good. Pray first, pray first, and faith in it. That's not just a happy accident that the leadership of this church has instituted that. Those are divinely inspired methods meant to draw God's people back to the basic understanding that God cannot be replaced. be finished in just a few moments. Only you know what you have replaced God with in your life. Only you know what you've settled for instead of the divine presence of Almighty God. But if you want something that lasts, something that is permanent, something that is more capable than the creation of your own hands, then you've got to turn wholly and completely to Jesus. The King of Kings, the image of the invisible God, our Savior. Part of our text tonight was in 1 John 5 and 20. I'm going to reread it. We know that the Son of God has come and he has given us an understanding. We've got the understanding, church, that we, we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship or relationship with the true God because we live in fellowship and relationship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal you can stand. John clearly defines in his first epistle our knowledge of God and the immutable fact that he is the only true God. This is the same clear message that we discovered earlier was given to the children of Israel. John goes on to, the, to establish the fact that we are in relationship the only true God just as those ancient people had been in covenantal relationship with him. The parallel between the Israelites and the modern church as expressed in verse 20 is unambiguous. 
and so it seems are the problems. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. As I stated in the beginning of this message, we are in the sovereign move of God. That's why I was given this message. Because church, we've got to get it right. We've got to get it right. I don't want to see the will of God pass us by because we have decided to create idols in our own lives. We've got to get this right. You can raise your hands. We're going to end in prayer. Lord, we love and appreciate you tonight, dear God. We thank you for your presence, for your spirit, Lord Jesus, that we feel for the instigation, Lord God, of truth in our lives. I pray, dear God, that you move in the hearts of this people, Lord Jesus, on our hearts, that we will not, Lord God, substitute you for anything else, dear God. You are our sovereign God, and there is no other but you. Lord, help us, Lord Jesus, to hold fast to that truth, Lord, never yielding, Lord, to anything, Lord Jesus, that would try to take your place. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Or dismissed. If we can get some help to pick up these chairs. We got yeah. If somebody could come up here and help with those chairs, we'd appreciate it.